Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand where you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Warren Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alfreda, Georgia. Brady, we're sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today's topic is, should I hire former convicts? And uh, when, when this topic was was suggested to me, I thought it was a really cool topic and it's only dumb luck that I think it happens to be more timely now than it might be at other times that, that we have seen. Um, I do not proclaim to be a, a, an expert in the criminal justice system. I've never served time. Um, never been in, in, in a criminal trial for anything, a uh, criminal matter for anything. Um, but, you know, I have become familiar with the, criminal justice system. I've toured the, you know, the Atlanta city jail. I've done ride alongs, things of that nature. So I've seen, I've seen some of it in, in action. I know some people who've worked uh, both as prosecutors and public defenders. And uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a massive system, a massive apparatus uh, of, of justice. And, you know, when you, in particular, when you tour a jail, you do ride alongs, you, you see a, you see a side of humanity that, most of us don't see. I think, frankly, we try hard not to see. You know, we, none of us want to necessarily. Very few of us want to live in a an area where crime is simply an everyday ho hum occurrence. Um, but you know, for good or ill, crime is is a fact of life. And and the United States per capita, I think, has one of the largest um, and most extensive prison systems, certainly of any democratic society. And a couple of data points, I think, jump out. You know, almost one in three people in the U.S. has a criminal record of some kind, according to USA Today. That that number shocked me. Um, and data that I've seen shows a roughly 27% unemployment rate among former conflicts uh, convicts. Actually, I'm kind of surprised it's that low. I thought it might have been higher. Um, but now here on May 11th, 2021, we're faced with a scenario that I have not encountered in my lifetime and I don't know that we've ever encountered really since since before the baby boom, maybe World War II, which is we have a labor shortage. We have widespread complaints in industry uh, and among many industries that they simply cannot, cannot hire enough people, that there are mismatches between jobs desired, jobs being offered. People are simply deciding not to return to work because of their fear of exposure to coronavirus particularly in uh, high consumer touch industries. Um, and I think also based on things that I've read and, and, and anecdotally, I think some people are reevaluating the cost of having a second income 
in the house. I think I think many families are are reevaluating, saying, you know, it's really not worth it. Maybe we'll, we'll have a we'll have a lesser f- uh, material standard of living in exchange for a life that we just think is better. And I'm not going to, I'm not sitting here, I can sit here and argue which is good, which is bad, but I think it's undeniable that that's happening. I think that's a very hard, that's a very easy argument to sustain. And, and so this topic becomes timely because we're really, the question is really put to us now, can we as a society afford to marginalize large groups of labor, right? Can we afford to simply have millions potentially of able-bodied men and women sitting this out when our economy desperately needs to, to get those people in the workforce? And by the way, and I'm sure our guests will talk about this at length, you'll have command of the data, but you know, there is, there's something to the, there is something to the notion that, uh, you know, idle hands are the devil's playground. Right. And, and, one of the best ways that I understand you can prevent you can prevent recidivism is simply to provide gainful employment to uh, people once they they exit the criminal justice system. And so, you know, given the fact that I just think it's a neat topic, it's a neat social topic, um, and, and the fact that now we have this unusual confluence of factors creating, at least in my lifetime, a unique labor economy. I, I just I think it's a very timely topic, and I hope that you'll find it interesting. And I think we're all going to learn something that we didn't expect to learn. And and, and joining us is uh, Jeff Krasenik, who is chief investment strategist for one of the nation's largest banks, where he is responsible for the investment strategy and allocation of over forty billion dollars in assets. A regular guest on CNBC, Fox Business News, and, and Bloomberg TV. I, I'm amazed they let you on all three of those at once. Well, maybe we'll get into that. His insights into the economy, markets, manufacturing, and the workforce are frequently cited in the financial and business press. His writings on economics and public policy have been published in Barron's, Forbes, CNN, the Chicago Tribune, and other outlets. In recognition of his work on the interaction of the criminal justice system and labor markets, Jeff was elected to membership in the Council of Criminal Justice. Jeff is the author of Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community published by HarperCollins Leadership, April 2021. So it's a brand new book with that brand new book smell. And it shares the business case and best practices for hiring people with criminal records. Jeffrey Krasenik, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Mike. Great to be here. So I had a bunch of questions prepared, but I'm going to go off the script right away because as I kind of learn about your bio and learn about you, the question that really jumps out is, why is this subject interesting to you? Why have you made this a big part of your life? And you know, going through your background, there's not an obvious connection. So I'm curious, how have you made this your thing? Uh, you know, there are two answers to that. The uh, straightforward answer is around 2013, 2014, the uh, big topic among economists was the uh, dropping out the, the slowing of labor force participation rates, the decline in labor force participation rates. We, we couldn't grow our workforce. And that's one of the real pillars of economic growth. So it's one of the reasons we grew so poorly out of 08, 09. And uh, I took it a step further and I said, and not merely observe this decline in labor force participation rate, I asked why. And I quickly came to the conclusion that the numbers, the data told you 
that it was social ills that were hurting us in a way we've never seen, at least in post-World War II America. Long-term unemployment, the opioid epidemic, and the incarceration recidivism cycle. So it became uh, very much part of my job, which is advising uh, businesses and clients on economic trends. And then I stumbled into some employers that had made it their practice to go into these marginalized groups, figure out how to bring them in and bring them in successfully. So that's the straightforward answer. Um, the, the deeper answer, I think, uh, goes back to my childhood. Um, every family has someone who does the heavy lifting in their family. For me, it was my dad, son of immigrants, raised absolutely dirt poor, enlisted in the uh, World War II at age 17, used the GI Bill, which covered four years. So he, he doubled up on classes and uh, ended up with, uh, in four years, degrees from Harvard, uh, undergrad in Harvard Law but never forgot his roots. And he would do these errands, uh, which were really just excuses to visit the neighborhood. And when I was 10 or 12, something like that, I went with him on one. Uh, we stopped. He introduced me to a friend. He had talked with him for at length. Uh, he owned a junk shop or something. And as we walked away, my dad remarked that this gentleman uh, had been in prison. And of course, I asked for what? And the answer, uh, my dad told me he was there for murder, a crime of passion. And my father said something that has just stuck with me forever. He said, he's done his time. So, so I think it's combined with the economic necessity of looking at this issue, but with this sense that people who have uh, served their sentence uh, do deserve a second chance, or at least can earn the right to that second chance. Yeah, you know, it, it gets back into it gets into a much larger issue that I think we're wrestling with now as a broader society, and we talk about things like student debt, for example, right? And I understand these things are not equivalent, but I do think there's a parallel. Does, does one bad decision or even a series of bad decisions, should that be the driver to effectively ruin somebody's life, right? And at what point is that, at what point is that justice? At what point is that, is that serving a true social good? Um, and and so, you know, that, that question fascinates me, I think. And I think that's probably why I think this conversation fascinates me, because I do think there's a parallel. So let, let me let me sort of cut to the chase. What's your argument? Somebody somebody's uh let's let's take a, a real world example. Um we've got restaurants right now that cannot stay open as much as they would like to because they simply do not have staff. Make the case, you know, talk to me like I'm a restaurant owner or a general manager. Make the case to me that that I should consider hiring somebody with a criminal record. Sure. The starting point is to recognize that my argument for business owners is purely an economic argument. I, I, I do not touch the ethical case. That's for us as individuals to decide. But the labor force that the labor shortage that you're observing today is only going to get worse. We've got the baby boomers leaving the labor market on average for the next decade at 10,000 people a, uh, a day are retiring. Baby boomers are retiring. The millennials are all in and birth rates peaked in 1990. So we, we just don't have the people. So the answer is to look where you haven't looked before. And I guess the, the, the basic question is, um, why would you want to exclude the 19 million Americans who have a felony conviction and the millions more who have a misdemeanor. It's not a case of saying all of them are employable. It's saying that this is a very big pool that other business leaders have found and business pioneers have found can be tapped very successfully to get not just adequate employees, but actually highly engaged and loyal employees. So uh, I, I want to geek out with you a little bit, sort of, um, amateur economist on my end to economist on your end. And that is, can, can you also kind of make the case that, that because of the, because of the, 
of the nature of somebody who has a criminal record as being, um, let's call it an impaired asset for or stigmatized asset, for lack of a better term, right? In theory, right? Economics, economics would tell us just by by drawing out the supply and demand curves that you ought to be able to to get more or less the same quality of work, but at a lower price, right? Because you're just at a different place on the, on the demand curve. You know, what you find is that's if those employers who have pursued this labor force as the cheapest labor force, it tends not to work that well. That doesn't maximize it. It's all about getting the right employee. And I think most business owners would, would share that sentiment. It's like, it's not about getting the cheapest. It's about getting the one that's the best fit for the job. Um, but what I would say is that the model that I talk about that works requires two processes. One, how do you identify who's ready to work? And two, how do you equip them to thrive? And that model would work anywhere. That model would work, you know, for people coming out of Harvard Business School. But the difference is everyone from Harvard Business School is picked over already. This is truly this untapped talent pool. And so that's why it's so effective. It, it may not be effective 10 years from now, but it's effective today because you have such a diverse group, given the numbers, you can find some fabulous, fabulous employees and really good people in there who've just made a mistake. So I want to come back to that because I think that's a deep topic that, that we want to spend some time on. But um before we get to that, are there any kind of programs that offer incentives for businesses to hire people out of the prison system? There are, and these are administered at the state level. The most commonly known one is the Work Opportunity Tax Credit, which provides some subsidies for, for employers. Again, I go back to there are employers out there. Um, I call this in my book, I refer to this as the disposable employee model, who are really just in it for cheap employees and where the wages are subsidized. But the the model that really maximizes economic opportunity is one that does tap those tax credits, but use it to help with training and support features. And and that's where you really maximize it. Uh, Generally, payroll companies can help. Um, That's a good way to to access these. Almost any payroll company is familiar with this and can help with the administration. So I would have to imagine, I haven't really been in this this scenario myself, but I have to imagine that one of the biggest fears, if not the biggest for a potential employer considering this kind of move is how do you get comfortable with somebody that, you know, has a, has a, a track record of doing one or more bad things and they've paid their debt to society, but they could incur another debt, right? So yeah, yeah absolutely. No, and, how do you how do you how do you address that fear or what advice do you give to business owners and hiring managers to address that fear in order to, to manage that risk, if you will? Yeah, you know, my advice is don't go it alone. There are uh, many nonprofit and some government partners that you can use that when when as long as you vet these partners appropriately and set the right expectations, they have time to build relationships. Uh, sometimes even before release from uh, prison, many times after release uh, from prison, or or there are many people with felonies who never served a prison term, Uh, but they can help you as the employer identify who's truly ready. So it's essentially um, just another kind of referral network, but one that is largely based on character, where you're asking them to identify who's got the character to do this right. And are those are organizations easily identifiable? Can you find them through Department of Labor or Google them? Or 
Yes. So around the country are these uh, uh, American job centers. There's a website, careeronestop.org, that uh, helps you locate the ones in your area. That would be a, a, a starting point. Um, I give many other uh, suggestions in the book, but there's national organizations like Goodwill that have active uh, reentry programs. But very often it might be the local church. Um, uh, so, so you have to invest some time in researching who's the right partner for you and your business. Okay. Now, I'm I'm curious in that in that 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 support system that information network. Do do prisons or jails themselves, or does the criminal justice system them, itself provide any information? For example, if I'm a hiring manager, could I could I ask information about how well behaved that prisoner was, or how well they engaged in in their rehabilitation programs? Did they overcome alcoholism, drug use, things of that nature? Is that information? available from the prison system? Or there elsewhere? are absolutely ways to do that. Um, usually that uh, uh, where I've seen that done most commonly is places that have already built a relationship with facilities and, um, and have kind of a developmental partnership going on. And is it, I'm, I'm curious, I have my own view on this, but, but I'm curious as to your view, because you probably had more conversations like this, you know, are, are, are prison managers, or I guess wardens, but executives, are they engaged as well? I mean, do they seem like they really want to help the prisoners re-enter? There is no single answer. It, it varies very much between states and even between facilities and even between professionals in facilities. I would say that there has been a very strong movement towards prison officials recognizing that they're not a job is not just to lock people up, but a broader sense of of pushing for public safety, which means successful reentry. So it is getting there. Um, some states and some facilities are fantastic at it, but it's not uniform. And have you noticed if there's any, um, any distinction between privately run prisons versus state run prisons in terms of whether they seem to do a better job or worse job with preparing convicts for reentry? You know, there's so few, Private prisons, you know, it's it's roughly 7%, I think, of the prison population is in private prisons. But I don't think that there's a, um, a particular distinction. Um, it, it really, you know, those contracts are, you, you get what you pay for. So this uh, economists would call this a monopsony, where you have one buyer, the state, and several providers. And so in those cases, the buyer, the state, really gets to dictate the terms. So I, I think... Uh, uh, you know, some of the folks at these private prison uh, companies have told me if a state approached them and wanted to do a performance-based uh, contract where the performance was based on uh, better outcomes, they'd absolutely do that. So there's no, I don't think there's a uh, better or worse uh, in, t- in terms of those outcomes. And just as, just as an aside, you, you get a gold star for using the word monopsony. I love that word. You don't hear it very often outside of economic circles. Um, so that that's going to be in the, one of the top. That's going to be one of the, the best of twenty twenty one clips for the podcast. Um, a, a theory I have is, I, you know, I wonder if the prison experience can actually lead to someone becoming a better employee than maybe they had been prior to entry. You know, not many employee, you know, many prisoners, many convicts had jobs, right? They they may very well have committed their crime on the job. Um, in your experience or in your, in what you studied, you know, does, does, does being in, does being in prison somehow with the regimentation or something or other 
can that make somebody a better employee? Um, it, it can in, in several odd ways. Uh, for one, criminologists have long noted that people age out of crime. And so, uh, you know, as the father of, of young men who were once teenagers, if I could have locked them up for 10 years and, until their brains matured, it sounds pretty appealing. <laughs> uh, and, and there, you know, there's a little bit of a sense of a lot of mistakes that get people into trouble with the law are really mistakes made by young men. Uh, the prison uh, system is, is disproportionately uh, young men and uh, who, who uh, have very poor judgment about risk and and delayed gratification and things like that that get them into trouble. So there's a sense that, yeah, just time can can help. Um, But it also has, um, it can be wake-up calls for people. Um, I I think we've all in our lives had times where we, we stumbled and, you know, presumably not in a criminal way, but we've stumbled and, and not lived up to who we would like to be ourselves. And people of character, including some people who've made criminal mistakes, pick themselves up and are determined to be better people and live up to their aspirations. And then finally, um, you realize that so many people who go into prison, particularly, again, young men, just had a very limited view of the world and um, and didn't know what's out there and how to think. And uh, some good prison programs really help with sort of virtue-based training. And uh, sometimes uh, prison ministries have turned people's lives around. And sometimes it stops the cycle of addiction. You know, I've had several uh, friends of mine who are formerly uh, incarcerated tell me that prison saved their life because it stopped, it broke their cycle of addiction. Yeah. And and to that point, I wonder also, you know, when, when uh, years ago I toured the uh, the Atlanta City Jail um, with a, a program in Atlanta, and, and you know, one of the things that struck me, many things struck me, but one of the things that struck me was how many of the inmates clearly had some sort of mental illness, right? And and um, I, I, it's it'd be it's too it's uh, almost too tempting to turn the show into a mental illness show. We're not going to do that, but we, I think we both know that there's a lot of mental illness that, that's in the prison system. And, and you know, that, it seems like there are opportunities for people to get treated for that as well, um, yeah. that, that can help them. Yeah, you recognize that a lot of people who have committed crimes were victims of crimes. It doesn't really change the need to, to have a criminal justice system, but it's important perspective because you realize that a lot of people had childhood trauma and trauma later in life, and that impacts how they think and that can drive uh, criminal behavior. The, the challenge becomes, this is a group that's very hard to advocate for in, pub, in, in budget circles, right? Mental health treatment costs money and is a, is a use of resources. And it's very hard, I think, for our policymakers to say, here are people who have you know, messed up, maybe hurt people, damaged property, we're going to provide them with free resources. It is, it's a good investment, um, but but it's something that it's very hard to advocate for politically. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is, um, it, it is, it is hard to get people excited about, about trying to take care of those that have in some way been deemed to harm, you know, to have harmed society. Um, especially because it's not like we have unlimited resources. Um, let me change gears in this a little bit. You know, the, to, to me, you know, I, in my simple minded way, I think about, I think of offenders as being violent versus nonviolent. And, and I, th- I would 
speculate those have different risk profiles. They may even have different skill profiles. Um, you know, you have to, you actually have to be pretty smart to steal millions of dollars of money from a corporation over, over time. Right? You have to have some skills to do that. So, so my question is, does the discussion change about hiring somebody with a criminal record if that criminal record is, is violent versus nonviolent? You certainly want to hire people who are nonviolent, but that doesn't mean you exclude people who are convicted of a violent crime. And uh, what you recognize is that very often people who were convicted of violent crimes, which is actually the plurality of people in the prison system, uh, it's not quite over half, but they're more, uh, if you look at uh, property crime, drug crime, and violent crime, um, more are in for violent crime than those other two categories. Um, But when you dig into it, you realize uh, a lot of that is uh, mistakes of youth, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sometimes it's connection to the drug drug, uh, industry. Uh, illicit drug industry, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine who has 500 second chance employees uh, in the Philadelphia area, he said, you know, most of these guys are in the drug business. If you're in the drug business, you're, you're, you're protecting your inventory. If you're protecting your inventory, that means having a gun and young men with tempers and hormones and all that um, it, with guns present is a really bad recipe. So people who've been convicted of violent crimes very often uh, we're not innately violent people, wrong place, wrong time, bar fights under the influence of, of drugs or alcohol, uh, immature, and they tend to have served longer sentences, which means when they come out, they tend to have had more time to reflect. They tend to have aged out of crime. So, you know, one of the reasons we've had such little success in, in the um, in reentry is because every employer's first instinct is, oh, I just want to talk to people with drug crimes because that's not violent. And very often it's people, they are still young, still sometimes addicted. Um, the, the better bet in general, and this is you, you shouldn't use generalities in your, in your decision making, but the better bet is actually people who one time violent offenders is usually a, a much better bet uh, statistically. That being said, it's all boils down to an individual assessment. Look at the person as a person, look at the specific, very specific circumstances of the criminal act. That, that is uh that is really interesting. So I, I just learned something today and that, and then uh, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, the, the, a, a, a violent act, you know, could just be a could just be a one time outburst, whereas, and and you do it, you pay for it, you're done. <clears throat> but you know, as we know, a lot of people never fully shake addiction, right? And, and you know, it 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 you know, addiction is just it is just so so thoroughly malevolent um, that um, you know the track record of shaking it, even under the best of circumstances, is is um, is is problematic. <clears throat> so. I'm curious, have you, have you been exposed to or studied any data that, that measures the performance of ex-convicts as employees? Do they tend to do worse, better, about the same as their, 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 their cohort with their peers with no criminal record? What does that look like? 
So it gets down to the model of employment. If you ask, you know, someone who's who's done this, uh, you know, disposable employee model, maybe a fast food restaurant where they they you know they're just after the tax credit. The people stay six months, nine months, and and uh, they're not very selective. They're just after the cheap labor solution. You'd say, oh, those they're not great, but they're cheap. But if you look at the models uh, that really maximize the economic opportunity, where there's a selection process and a support process, um, that's where you see the data uh, really shines. And there are two large-scale studies, one done by the Johns Hopkins Hospital System, uh, when they had uh, they released the data at the time they had 500 second-chance hires. And the other was, interestingly, uh, the U.S. military. And both studies, uh, the military study was actually done Outside the military, a, a UMass Amherst University, of Massachusetts Amherst professor who used Freedom of Information Act to see to get performance statistics from people who had gotten felony waivers to enlist. Um, both studies all show the same thing: people with records selected, uh, selected right, and supported appropriately are not just employees, they're actually superior employees, and they tend to to, uh, be more loyal and more engaged. And you can see that along any number of metrics. There aren't a lot of studies out there. There are more coming. I I know uh, one done by another uh, uh, company that that, uh, I spoke to the people who did the study. Again, all the studies affirm this, um, but it's a matter of putting the right model in place. So accepting the fact that the studies so far are limited more in the pipeline, but the ones you're citing seem to, to, to be pretty positive. Why do you think that is? What, what, what is it? Is it, is it simply motivation or is it something else that it's, it's very much motivation. People um, who, who have had criminal justice interaction know that when they're given an opportunity, it's a rare thing. So they tend to be very grateful for it. Um, and again, we go down to back to that, you know, analogy in our lives, when you stumble, and you pick yourself up, you're more determined than ever. So it's a combination of um, determination to rebuild a life, and also to um, uh, appreciation, which translates to loyalty and low turnover rates. And And it may also be low turnover for the wrong reason. People don't have the mobility to go to other firms. And so they, they stay in place. But either way, it benefits the uh, it benefits the employer. So, yeah, and I'm, I'm curious about one thing. You know, we, we hear the stories every once in a while. Somebody while in prison obtains a law degree or a PhD or, you know, something like that. You know, I, I don't know if those are the exception of the rule. They, they sound, they seem to me like they might be exceptional, but from a broader sense, are there skills that people pick up in prison, maybe either hard or soft skills that make them better employees coming out than they might have been going in. I'm a skeptic of that. You know, I hear they're more entrepreneurial. I hear, which may be true. I I, I think um, it's not so much hard skills as uh, a matter of character. Uh, the The term that I constantly hear applied to second chance employees is they have grit. They can navigate risk. They can they can you know they can bounce back. Uh, so those are the things that that. Uh, you know, I think from the standpoint of many employers is even more attractive than a single skill. That's interesting. In fact, I, I probably finished uh, the the book Grit by Angela Duckworth earlier this year. And, uh, you know, that that's interesting that I would not have expected that answer necessarily because my understanding or my impression from what I've seen about the prison system is that in order to maintain kind of basic order, that, that the, the, 
the prison staff needs to establish themselves kind of as the alphas, right? Because they're, they're outnumbered hundreds to one in some cases. They're not allowed to carry firearms inside the facility, et cetera. So, and, and from what I've, what I've seen in order to establish that, there really is a, a psychological assault to, to compel a prisoner basically to understand their place, for lack of a better term, which to me sounds like that would be something that would be kind of anti-grit. But the fact that, but what you're, what you're describing sounds that, you know, the fact that they're coming out with more grit to me is a little counterintuitive, but I mean, it's encouraging because that clearly sets you better, up better for life. I, I think some of it has to do with the re-entry process. I, I spend some time in the book educating prospective employers about all the hurdles that someone coming out of prison has to go through, you know, housing, documentation, uh, learning some basic, uh, basic electronic skills. You know, they might have gone in before cell phones were around or smartphones were around. And uh, when you think about all the things you have to overcome just to be ready to apply for a job, that shows and, you know, along the way, face rejection after rejection, not just for uh, jobs, but often for housing. Um, it's the people who you get to at the other end. The, those are ones with, with grit. So that they uh, perhaps they didn't develop it in prison, but they sure as heck developed it along on the pathway out, at least the ones who are to the point of, of being ready to, to work. So we touched on on the na- the notion of of due diligence at the start of the conversation. I'd like to circle back to that. For a practical experience, if somebody listening on this podcast is is considering a, and I like your term, so I'm going to try to remember to adopt it, a second chance hire. Um, uh, what are what are red flags that should that would po- that would that somebody should be aware of? Sure. I mean, repeat offenses um, and uh, a sense, particularly with regard to addiction, that someone is not ready uh, would be important. Um, you do, as an employer, ask, uh, have the right to ask questions. And I think uh, uh, you get a sense of who owns this in their life and takes responsibility for this. Uh, you get to ask all sorts of uh, you know, questions about what would make this different. And, and so uh, I, I think there's a process, and particularly if you rely on outside experienced outside partners, they can handle a lot of this getting rid of the red flags uh, for you. But there, there's a whole host of things you want to check for, um, you know, is emotional management an issue, is, uh, you know, work ethic, work experience, um, have tr- uh, addictions been dealt with, have traumas been dealt with, how are they thinking? And these are things that Good in-prison programming can help with a tremendous amount of post-prison programs uh, help in this as well. So that's why I, I always think y- you want a partnership with, with, with someone who, who who can really attest to the character of the person. Yeah, I mean, it's, that, navigating that is navigating that sounds very complex, and and with information coming from a lot of sources. So I can certainly see that in that case. Having a partner, especially if it's a nonprofit, I presume that means those services are generally free or very inexpensive. So, yes, and you know, it is a responsibility of a business owner. If, if this is your talent part, pipeline of good people, you should be supporting that nonprofit too. Um, and a lot of these businesses do that in various ways, but but um, ultimately, it, it's an investment. Uh, and it's a worthwhile investment. There are also, I should mention, temp staffing agencies that focus on this. And so they do a part of the vetting, but B, as an employer, you can do attempt to hire. And that's a lot of uh, programs you use that. Um, attempt to hire has drawbacks normally in a tight labor market, right? Because um, 
the best candidates of intent to hire, you know, get snatched up right away or don't need to go that route. But again, this is an untapped resource. So the negatives of temp to hire uh, for other populations aren't negatives here. Is there a, a particular success story of, of a second chance employee that you can think of? Maybe you can tell tell the audience about that can whet their appetite, at least for for what could be if they go this route? Uh, you know, I, I th- there are so many stories, but I, I always like to share the one that I made the case study chapter of my book. My, my book is filled with uh, actual business owners that have done this and, and some of the, the outcomes they've had. But I focus in particular on a company in Lebanon, Ohio called JBM Packaging. And I, I chose them because they didn't come to this uh, for any kind of ethical reason. I mean, very ethical ownership, but 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 they did it for a traditional reason. They couldn't find talent and they tried other pools and, and that's how they came to this. And they uh, it's a second generation family business. They set up what they call their fair chance hiring program. And uh, ultimately uh, more than 20% of their 150 employees, uh, associates are second chance or fair chance in their terminology. It has solved their labor uh problem. They've expanded the program. They even found one of their former employees had gotten into trouble was uh, in the Ohio prison system. They petitioned the prison authorities to have them transferred to another uh, facility where they could install a folding machine. That's part of what they do. And so they have an in-prison training program. They pay a training stipend. Any uh, product coming out of there, they recycle. They don't want to be, uh, they don't want any question about whether they're conducting prison labor or not. And they've got a pipeline now, not just of uh, entry level, but of trained talent coming out with a former employee as the trainer. Boy, talk about a talk about a, a vertical integration. That that's a great story. Um, and how how long has that program been going on? Do you know? Uh, about three four years. Okay. And uh, they even a breakthrough moment for them was hiring a life coach that's Got available it. to all their employees. And that it, it, it's not just a matter of making sure there are support resources. A lot of people who come out of these situations, life situations in prison. Um, don't even know how to tap resources. They just don't know how to navigate these things. So it's uh, uh, it's very helpful. They've had a tremendous success with this program, and it's ultimately transformed the whole company. They're now very involved in uh, uh, other areas of innovation, not just innovation in hiring, but innovation in packaging, moving from plastics to paper packaging, for instance. Uh, so it's 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 changed the it's transformed the company in very very positive ways. In your experience or based on what you've seen, are there certain industries or maybe kinds of companies that lend themselves better to hiring second chance employees than others? You know, I think, again, I go back to the size of this talent pool, and there could be a fit for for just about every industry. That being said, manufacturing has been the easier fit. And it's the easier fit because uh, manufacturing roles typically aren't customer facing. So some of the reputational concerns that fears that employers might have aren't an issue. People aren't handling money, so you don't have those issues. And they tend to be middle skill jobs, things you can train for that don't require a college degree and pay a pretty good wage. And so that's also helps people sustain this. So the biggest successes I've seen have tended to be manufacturing, but it, it is not because it doesn't work well in other industries. So um, 
what are are there best practices that have evolved in terms of onboarding a second chance employee? Now, I, I would have to imagine that needs to be treated or ought to be treated a little bit differently than your conventional garden variety employee. And if so, can you share kind of some tips in that regard? I think it's a recognition that you need a little bit more flexibility uh, because you don't know what you don't know. Uh, I'll give you an example. CKS Packaging, another big packaging company in, based in Atlanta, uh, but they're in you know maybe a dozen other locations around the country. They started the program and like most uh, uh, goods manufacturing companies, they had a uh, no show, no call, no job rule. And when they started this, they found that uh, you know a very good, otherwise very good second chance employee didn't show up and didn't call. And uh, the initial response, the HR person was, okay, we'll terminate them. And uh, Lloyd Martin, the executive who led this program said, you know, I think we need to find out more. And so they went to visit him because they had helped him establish, the employee helped him establish um, some housing, knocked on the door. He was there. They said, why, why weren't you in work? And he said, well, I'm sick. You don't want me to come in when I'm sick, do you? And I, he said, I can put on a coat and I can come. And he said, no, no, you did the right thing. Why didn't you call and the gentleman said, Mr. Lloyd, I don't have a phone. I don't have any friends with phones. In fact, I don't really have any friends. And that person is still there, you know, several years later. And, and that kind of flexibility and need to understand that there's a lack of mentorship. Um, other areas of flexibility that can come up are things like uh, policies that allow people to go visit parole officers or better yet, create a space within the facility, especially if you have multiple employees who are on parole where parole officers can come to the facility and not disrupt the workday. Those, those are the kind of things that come up. Um, this, this borders on a legal, on a legal question, but I'll ask it anyway. And if you want to beg off, you're welcome to do so. But in your mind, do, do other employees have a right to know if a new hire, somebody they're working next to and it with has a criminal record? No, no more than you, you'd have a right to know another employee's medications or medical history. Uh, yes. You know, the, the reality is in this day and age, companies that have second chance programs, I think people probably go on Google and see what they can find. Uh, but, but, but there is no employer employee right to that kind of information. We are talking to Jeffrey Krasenik and the topic is, should I hire former convicts? Um, so, so you know, we talked about onboarding, but then and you started to touch upon this. And I, I do want to dig into it because I think this could really be interesting. Are, are there some, do, do people that are second chance employees, do they need to be managed, led, trained differently than somebody that does not have that prison experience in their background? And if so, what are some best practices to kind of get the most out of those people? You know, I, I don't think necessarily, um, but you do need support networks for other things. Uh, if you've hired the person ready to turn their life around, you've got all sorts of great motivation and, and character, um, but it tends to be other things that get in the way. And uh, those tend to be transportation, housing, just not knowing what they don't know. Uh, one uh, company that I've worked with, Cascade Engineering, makes available for their supervisors a poverty simulation, uh, which I think is a great way to um, help sensitize supervisors to the challenges of being deeply poor. Uh, and that often characterizes this group. But again, you know, it's 19 million people. You might have someone who's 
10 years out of uh, uh, incarceration, successfully rebuilt their life, furthered their education. That's just another employee and doesn't need any special consideration other than the opportunity. Heck, you might hire somebody that you may hire somebody that stole ten billion dollars. The Fed's only found nine, so they, you know they could be loaded and they're just drawing something out of the Cayman Islands. So you, you can't necessarily make assumptions. But I, you know, I love that. I'm going to Google that to see if there's something like that out there. That that poverty simulator, I think, is so important because as as I study decision making, um, one of the things I've learned is that being in poverty on average, lowers one's functional IQ by 10 to 15%, simply by virtue of the fact that you're in, you're in, you're in constant existential, not, not existential spiritual, but existential like living, right, yeah. and your family to live, that you become effectively 10 to 15% dumber on average, right, which means some people become 40% dumber on average. And, and, and understanding that, understanding that an environment does cause people to be less than their best selves, right? And make make lousy decisions, I think, I think creates empathy and helps you understand where the, the employee is coming from. And therefore, and therefore, for example, like that employee that didn't have a phone, right? You gotta you gotta take the time to check. I, I've managed many people over the years and one, uh, you know, th- this was a reach, but I, I had something like 50 direct reports in this insane setup uh, years ago. And it's our responsibility as business people and managers to foster the growth of our employees, give them pathways to being, you know, the best employee they can be. And uh, that does require a sensitivity to where they're starting from and giving them some runway to, to, uh, uh, to succeed. Um, a couple more questions before we let you go, but, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the case of, for, for companies to, to give people that, that second chance, make that second chance higher. Can you think of a profile of, of a, of a, a hiring manager or a company that maybe shouldn't try to go down that path? Who's a, who's a bad fit on the hiring side for the second chance employee? I don't think there's any real answer to that um, other than to note it's a matter of commitment and recognition that this is an investment and will require a change of processes. Um, So if you are, it doesn't matter the industry, but if, if you are just intransient and just not willing to make change and, and commit to this, uh, it's not going to work. It is important though, that uh, businesses, many businesses do have, Regulatory restrictions. Uh, I work for a bank. We are restricted in who we can hire. Defense contractors are another great example of that. Um, but I always tell employers, check the specifics because in general, people tend to think all doors are closed when it's just some doors. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, if, if you're, you know, unfortunately, even in 2021, there are there are employers that treat labor in a way that I don't agree with. They treat them as quasi disposable. And I think also if you and you've kind of hinted upon this, but I'd like to underline it because I think it's an important point. If if you're if you're it sounds like what you're saying is that if you're trying to hire second chance employees because you just think you're getting a great deal and by great deal, I'm going to I'm going to use a very just an inflammatory term getting slave or quasi slave labor right? That's not going to work out well, right? Do something else. Yeah. And it's not going to work for your, for the company um, in the long term because we're coming into a new environment 
we have never seen a labor shortage of the, and you referred to this earlier, Mike, of the likes that we are entering into, and it's going to persist for years and probably decades. And so, so business models that assume there is this unending supply of cheap labor aren't going to work anymore. And you know, you pointed something out that I, I, I kind of knew in the back of my mind, but I didn't put together until now or till this this discussion. I want to thank you for that. This is not new. This is simply an exa- an accelerating trend that we've really seen that we've seen since at least 2010, if not earlier, right? And it's because of simple simple demographics. Um, uh, you know, we 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 ain't making people as quickly as we're losing people <laughs> in the labor right. force, basically. And since uh, since Im- immigration, no matter what side of the issue you're on, is a hot mess, that's not going to come to our rescue. Well, and, and this declining birth rates and fertility is a global phenomenon, too. Yep. So there, there are, among developed countries, there's only one country that has a fertility rate above even the replacement rate of its population, and, and that's Israel. And uh, there aren't enough Israelis to go around, you know, for the world uh, labor needs. No. There are countries, 7 million, there's only so much they can do. <laughs> um Jeffrey, this has been a fun conversation and and very informative, um, and you have such a great command of the subject matter. If somebody wants to contact you with a follow-up question, or maybe they want to talk about something that we didn't get to, um, how can people contact you for more information? Sure. I have a contact form on my website. My website is jeffkorzenik.com. Uh, I do my best. I, I have gotten a lot busier with the book's uh, launch, but I do try to get back to people. Uh, again, jeffkorzenik.com, which means you have to be able to spell Korzenik, K-O-R-Z-E-N-I-K. I'm the only Jeff Korzenik on the planet. So if you, can, if you can spell the last name, you can find me. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Jeff uh, Krasenik so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Bradyware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.